This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everybody, uh, to this wonderful uh, panel that we have today to talk about technology industry and uh, what the future uh, looks like after COVID-19. Your moderator uh, for this panel would be Professor Heyman Bargava, and I thought for the benefit of uh, our panel members, I would introduce him to the panel members and you, and then Professor Bargava will take over to just the panel and then start uh, the questions. Heyman uh, Bargava is the Jerome and Elsie Suran Chair in Technology Management. He has done groundbreaking research in technology management and has been researching how platforms have affected commerce and consumer behavior. After spending uh, some time last year at Google, interacting with various technology groups and sharing his knowledge in analytics, Professor Bhargava has recently launched a center for analytics and technology in society. The center researches critical issues in three areas, healthcare, entertainment, and platform business, and examines how data, information, and analytics are transforming businesses, markets, and consumer experiences. Professor Bhargava is also the co-founder of our MSBA program and was its founding academic director. So I hand it over to uh, Hemant Bhargava. Thank you, Hemant. Thank you, Rav, for the great introduction. And uh, thanks to all the panelists for joining us here. And I just want to second Jackie and you in welcoming everybody else to the event. And thank you to the staff for running it for us, of course. Um, I will introduce the four panelists. We have four. Um, and I'll do that one by one as we begin uh, asking questions. But I thought for the benefit of everyone, I'd give you a sense for what ground we'll be covering today. So I'm just going to present uh, that on a slide so you can all see that here. And um, sorry, that is the wrong slide, but you can get to the correct one. Okay. Oh. okay. So we really have um, two sets of things to talk about, right? Um, we want to look at the COVID-19 economy that we're in right now. Um, and I would ask each of the panelists to really describe it from their perspective, their perch. But I think beyond looking at the facts and the situations, I would really love for you to give us a window into your way of thinking. How do you approach corporate leadership during these times? And so I'll have some questions around that. And then we want to get a sense into what I would call the post-COVID era. You know, I think when this particular panel was set up, at least I had some hope that we, we would have uh, COVID-19 sort of in the rearview mirror. And I think it's pretty obvious that it's not, but at some point we will be in a post-pandemic time. And I think from the perspective, particularly of our students who are here, and then for us as you know, educators, We'd love to understand how, in your companies and your broader uh, perspective, um, how, what kinds of transformation you, you are seeing in work, in the nature of demand in your ecosystem, how you design and run your organizations, and then most importantly for the students, um, what you perceive as future success factors, skills, experiences, characteristics, and so forth. So to give a little bit of context into you know, where we are today, I'll just display two sets of charts to you. I won't bore you with this very much. And I think everybody reads the news and looks at the data all the time, but I just thought we'd get this out here and have a perspective. I know these pictures, I don't expect you to drill into them, but you see about one picture <laughs> on the top left is the US um, and the red line is the daily known infections. And there's a gray line, which is testing. 
And then you have about 23 of the bigger states that are displayed here. And you know, the insight you would get from that is first of all, in the US, we certainly have not been able to get COVID-19 into our rearview mirror. Some states have done really well, and these are the states in the top two rows, which had fairly high uh, spread and then have been able to get it down, even beyond the reopening or uh, you know, uh, loosening of the lockdown that we've all experienced. And then you have states in the bottom two rows where you can see that it's really, it's, it's havoc, right? We're still seeing uh, enormous spreads uh, uh, on a daily basis. And then the final chart I want to show you is really this picture about how we as a society have changed our behavior. So the four pictures you see there are based on um, capturing mobile phone presence in four categories of things. So transit stations, which has to do with public travel, uh, changes in presence at retail uh, stores. So that would be clothing and other kinds of retail. And then on the bottom left, you have changes in, in being, going to work, right? And so we know we all, most of us work at home. And then the final is food and pharmacy and so forth. And what you see from here, and there are about 25 states, and again, you cannot really get into each one of them, but you see a few patterns, right? That first of all, there was a serious change in behavior in the first three or four weeks. And then we are sort of reverting to the mean. And, and every picture here displays a change or reduction usually in presence in cell phones compared to a benchmark that you would have expected on each day of this uh, time period. But you can also see this tremendous heterogeneity across the states. So if you look at transit station activity, we went up to 75% down in some states, but only about 25 in others, and then the entire trend has moved up. Working from home seems to have been a little more stable. So you have somewhere between 30 and 60% of the workforce still predominantly working from home. Retail seems to have bounced back, at least in some states, but not in, at, obviously, at the bottom uh, set of them. And then we obviously, we're all eating and consuming uh, you know, pharmaceutical products. So that, that seems to be much more uh, flat compared to the past. So I just wanted to put that out uh, for everyone to understand you know, in what sense we are still in this pandemic time, all right? So with that as a background, I'm going to turn the discussion over to each of the speakers and try to go through these two broad sets of uh, questions that I had. I'll begin with introducing Michael Hulston, who is currently Chief Executive Officer at Synaptics. Uh, Mike comes to, this, to us and this panel with a wealth of experience and leadership in technology. He has been previously at Finisar and Broadcom, among other companies. Um, and of course, his biggest accomplishment is he has graduated from UC Davis uh, three times. And that's why lights going off in our office. Uh, they should turn on soon, I hope. Um, and Mike has an undergraduate degree from uh, Davis and then an MBA and a Master of Science. So he's been both in the business and engineering schools. I think it's also worthwhile pointing out in this context that the company he's leading now, Synaptics, has really produced what I would call paradigm sh shifting innovations during at least the last 20 years, including for all of you who use uh, uh, laptops, with touchpads, 
which really enable laptops to get thinner and lighter uh, because they no longer needed a, a ball mouse or a track, track ball. And then of course, uh, turning to smartphones with fingerprint sensors, touch interfaces, voice interfaces. So I think I want to set the context for that because as I displayed in the picture a little moment before, we are in a very long moment of crisis, right? And, and in the US in particular, however you look at it, number of infections, deaths, and an unemployment rate of 13%, which I was looking has never occurred since the Great Depression, right? And we've had an enormous impact on travel, our lives, schooling, and so forth. So what I want to ask you um, at a very factual level is really what is the business implication of this you know, shift uh, due to COVID-19 on synaptics, but also on your business ecosystem. And more importantly, as you talk about that, how do you think about corporate leadership during these times? And given synaptics' history, and given the current situation, is this the time for you know, bold action, paradigm-shifting innovations, doing things that you would not have done six months ago, and taking risks? Or is it the time to hunker down, shrink back, be cautious? Right. So we'd love to have you uh, talk about that, Mike, and welcome to this. Sure. No, thanks, Hamant, and uh, thanks for all of you to for paying attention. Um, hopefully, you get something out of this, and I, I think the uh, the other three panelists are far more interesting than me, so I, I won't take a lot of time. Um, you know, I think Synaptics is is very unique. You have a, a, a set of with the, with the other three CEOs. You've got a wide range of, of experiences and exposures to the broader market. Uh, Synaptics, we make, essentially we make semiconductor solutions. So we're a chip provider and that chip technology gets built into mobile phones, it gets built into PCs, it gets built into docking stations a whole array of, of end products. And if you look at our business, what's interesting is there's been different dynamics in, in each area. We've been negatively affected by our business that's centered on consumer. So we make chipsets that go, for example, into Google Home speakers. And those, because Best Buy has been shut down for the most part, our business there is, has tailed off pretty appreciably. We've got exposure to the automotive market, and one can imagine now with this unemployment that Haman talked about a minute ago, there's not a lot of new car buying that's going on. So our automotive business has been hit fairly appreciably. Um, mobile phones is interesting. We've got exposure mobile phones, which is again, a consumer discretionary item. Our mobile phone business, we, we've got some things that are happening that hide the, the bigger macro. The bit on the macro now, are the smartphone market, which is the, actually the biggest consumer of semiconductors, is down very appreciably. It was down last year, and the market is down again this year, and this year it's very significant, and that's a worldwide phenomenon, China, United States, Europe all the phone buying economies are, are down pretty significantly. Our business has some unique properties because we've got some new products that have entered. So our mobile phone business hasn't 
suffered that much. In fact, we've been up uh, even during the pandemic because because of the uh, some of the tailwinds we have. The interesting thing we have is, as Haman talked about, we actually have exposure to PCs and to working docking stations, and those businesses have been up dramatically. We can't actually keep up with demand because of the whole work from home phenomenon. People have been buying PCs, buying docking stations, and that's really driven demand to levels that we never anticipated. So that part of our business is, is doing really well. So if you kind of take a step back and you balance everything out on aggregate, actually, we're not doing that badly. In fact, we're performing about where you would have expected even before COVID-19. So as, as Crystal and Jeff will talk about, certainly we react a lot to the public markets. Public markets have analysts, as you know, that put out their estimates for what the companies will do. And we've performed actually in line with estimates, which is remarkable given all these negative headwinds that you'd expect that we'd face. But if you look beneath the covers, we've got businesses that are up, some businesses are down, and, and the balance has been a relatively positive surprise. Now, um, and Jeff and Crystal know this because we, we, we work together on a CEO group that I call it CEO psychology sessions, where we all sit down and commiserate together about how bad the world is because see, as CEOs, we don't have anybody else to complain to but each other. Um, we've been very aggressive at Synaptics in getting people back to work. Uh, this is this is actually my work office. We probably have 50 or 60 percent of our workforce back in now that's rotating on a, a weekly basis. We have half the population come in one week and half the next and we've got temperature testing and masks that are required sort of as people exit the offices and limited numbers in conference rooms and things like that. But we found that Efficiency was a very important measure and we found efficiency was down. So we actually have been aggressive in bring, bringing people back to the office. Hamon asked about leadership style. We've had to balance business needs with people needs and, and people obviously are very concerned. Our employees are concerned about spreading the disease and contracting the disease. So we've had to employ a lot of safety measures um, but unlike, let's say, Crystal, I think Crystal will talk about her business, which is software, hardware engineers and people that are designing chips, I find we need a much higher level of collaboration. So bringing people back into the office has been important for us to prosecute our business. And yet we've had to balance the business needs with the needs of the workforce, which has been, been very, very tricky. Um, this has required a lot of, of leadership skills and you know, a lot more communication than would be normal in terms of myself and our other leaders talking to the people. We've act actively engaged in both dialogue, all hands meetings, as well as messaging and blogging and things like that, just to make sure the communication flow is up. So maybe I'll, I'll end there and, and turn it over to the other panelists, Hamant, uh, and I'll come back and answer some of the other parts uh, later on. Thanks so much for those insights, uh, Michael. Um, let me turn over to you, Crystal. Um, uh, Crystal Beaumont is uh, at uh, Talon, which is a big data company. 
And um, she's the chief executive at Talent, and she was previously at Conquer, uh, which most of you would recognize. Um, Crystal has a bachelor's degree uh, from Missouri. Missouri or Missouri? Missouri. Big debate, no? Unless, unless there's a debate on that, for That's sure. Right. So. Yeah. And also a long presence in technology, as I said previously, with Conquer and several other companies and focusing on sales and marketing. Um, and Talent is also a company that I think is very well positioned, uh, both for the 2020s era, but also at this particular time, because of its focus on big data integration. Um, so again, I think my question to you is, first of all, from your perspective, what does it really mean uh, to the company and to your business ecosystem? But also particularly with, I think what I understand, Talent's main focus is to get their customers data ready, or what I would call analytics ready, right, through data integration and processes and so forth. And in that sense, what do you see as, as you know, again, the leadership issues and styles during this time in your situation? Yeah, I, I think there's, um, there are a number of different venues that we can go down here, but I'll maybe just cover a broad brushstroke and then certainly happy to circle back if needed. Yeah. So from Talon's perspective, we sit in the heart of moving data from an integration standpoint, as you said, and um, and then the second stage of that is making sure that we transform the data into something that um, has the quality integrity factors that actually becomes useful to serve up data scientists, data uh, business um, intelligence and so forth. If you think about the very nature of the, of the conversation and, and the heart of this is data is it fuels everything. It's the, it's the pipes, it's the, it's the um, infrastructure to organizations. And so we have had, and not much different than Michael, but we have had um, as a global SaaS company that sits in 13 different countries, 24 different locations, about 1400 people, everything from Beijing to France to every part of Europe back into North America, We've had a wide variety of um, impacts from a location standpoint in terms of the trajectory that took place starting in APAT coming around. And um, so we've, we've had some impact in terms of some industries, as, as Michael was saying, that um, are, are affected more, more than others, as you've all heard. And um, then we just have some budgetary um, situations where regardless of location, regardless of, regardless of industry, just simply based on where a company is at in their, you know, in their stage of life cycle, they are um, and more vulnerable potentially than others. And so all three of those factors have played a role in what has created a very inconsistent pattern that's been difficult to really point to say, this is the one thing that holds true and is constant across all these things. It is a very dynamic situation. I think one of the most important things that I know myself and a lot of other um, executives are looking at is how do we, what do we hold on to that's the new set of instrumentation or information that guides us? So what's interesting about that is that's somewhat of what we do is we provide the pipes and the data so that every company is trying to re-instrument their business so how it's kind of impacted us is we have a lot of new opportunity that we never had before. So we have people saying, so the way I would frame it is digital transformation is at the heart of opportunity for a lot of organizations. And that was going on before COVID. That's an opportunity. Now what's happened is it's a necessity to move to a place where you re-instrument and you have the ability to say either 
I'm in trouble or I see trouble coming, or I have to look at new factors on how I distribute or how I respond. Either way, we become part of the equation in many cases. So what we've seen is some people have taken a pause and said, we can't afford to do anything right now. I think it's kind of some of where we may even go in this conversation to say, we're going to hit the pause button and just wait and see. That has had an impact on, on some of our, our market. We've got other people that said, we can't wait. We need to do this now. We have to get to the data. So give it a great example, just for some context. Domino's is a big customer of ours, but we have lots of customers in every industry and every size of company. Domino's had to figure out a way to do contactless delivery. Like, so customers are, of ours and companies are trying to reformulate the way that they, they, they work with, you know, based on the new conditions. So they're having to figure out how do I do that? How do I instruct that? We have a lot of pharmaceutical companies and a lot of healthcare organizations that are trying to solve for this problem. So we, we, we've come in in really material ways. Our organization has absorbed this in a lot of different ways because we're, you know, very global in nature. And, um, you know, it's definitely been something that we've had to take on a case by case basis because there's just not one thing that looks the same as it did six months ago. And there's not one thing that can be really truly patterned. It's a constant evolving state. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And I'm sure both of what both Michael and you said, there are things we should want to turn uh, back to when we get through. And I love your point about digital transformation moving from an opportunity to a necessity, right? In education, healthcare, and I think also entertainment is an area where mm -hmm. people thought it was a taboo thing, right? To do a remote um, activity and it's become a necessity now. Um, okay, so going on, we'll turn uh, next to Jeff Bank, who is CEO of Benchmark Electronics. And uh, my understanding is that Benchmark is a, it's a contract manufacturing uh, company. So you have factories and I believe there was one uh, that you had to shut down uh, this month. So, um, uh, and, and you know, continuing the introduction of uh, Jeff, he has uh, a degree, a master's degree in management of technology, which I think is fantastic, uh, from University of Miami, and he's been at the Rochester Institute of Technology. So Jeff, the question to you again is, uh, you know, certainly what does the situation mean from your perspective? But also given that, uh, you know, some of your solutions and contract manufacturing help your customers make innovative products. What are you hearing from your clients? And again, how do you, you know, how do you approach this issue of leadership and this change and some of these things that were opportunities becoming necessities in this uh, COVID uh, era? Sure. Yeah, I think all of us, we, it's funny, we all, I think, share similarities and then we're all a little bit different. I think uh, what was uh, a little bit more on Benchmark, um, Benchmark is, uh, an engineering design and manufacturing services company. So we can not only build products for customers, OEMs that don't want to build their own products, but they can leverage us for that. But we also have engineering design services. So if you're uh, an engineer with a bright idea, but you need a help to pull it off, or maybe a small company, or even a large company that wants to do a refresh on a product, we can help with that as well as then ultimately manufacture it. Um, what's, what's a little bit interesting for us is that we have 25 facilities around the world. We're a global company. We have 12,000 employees. And right uh, at the heat of the pandemic, when everybody was working remote, I only had about 20% of my workforce that I could have be remote. 
So we actually had to continue operations around the world in the middle of, you know, places that were being shut down and shelters in place were happening. So the big challenge for us in this has been, how do we keep people safe? You know, how do we ensure that we don't have community spread? Uh, knock on wood, we, you know, with 12,000 employees, we have about 20 incidents of COVID within my team. Nobody required hospitalization, thankfully. But none of that was from within my factory. All of it was the community that they live in and they you know, found out they had it, they didn't feel well, they stayed home. And we were able to not have spread through the factories, which could be pretty devastating as you can imagine. Um, to your point, we did actually have some factories that were shut down for a short term. Like in California, we had a factory that's in the semiconductor space. And um, while the governor was figuring out what was a critical industry and could we operate, uh, everyone saw the Tesla news where Tesla got shut down. Um, we had some pauses, so we've had that disruption to deal with as well. Um, our big industries that we support are medical, aerospace and defense, uh, industrial, and computer, compute and networking technology. So you can imagine across that diverse set of industries, we've seen um, in our industrial segment, we do a lot of oil and gas uh, control systems. Well, that business is way down probably down 30, 40%. But then in medical, we actually work on 17 different products that actually help in the COVID fight. So for example, GE Healthcare is a customer and we build ventilators uh, for GE Healthcare. We're one of their suppliers, for example. So it's been interesting, a bit like Michael said, our, our healthcare business is, is going like gangbusters and it's great that we're actually helping in the fight. We we work uh, on a product for a customer over in Europe that's a rapid, uh, a rapid COVID tester. We work on a nitric oxide device that is a device you go on to help with your breathing before you need a ventilator. We work on several ventilators. So it's been interesting to see how our medical business has really um, done quite well in a very challenging environment. Um, we've also seen the computer industry and our telecom be off you know, as kind of expected. Um, but then semiconductors are kind of in an upswing and, and still going quite well. And in the aerospace and defense business, aerospace is way off, particularly commercial aerospace, but our defense business is very strong. And so you kind of look at that and you go, in aggregate, um, we're still dealing with, you know, a challenging year, but we see, you know, areas that there's strength and, and areas that there's, that there's weakness. And, and so back to your point, you know, I think it's, it's how do you take advantage of making sure you go after those things that you can, you can help um, customers, you know, deliver to help solve problems. And at the same time, how do you pivot and shift resources to be able to, you know, to, to bring more to bear on those. The other thing I think we've all found in this, and, and I know from the other CEO discussions I've had, you know, we went from, you know, being there with digital because we're a tech company, but overnight, you know, we're all on Microsoft 365. We're all doing multi-factor authentication because we want to stay safe from a cyber and, you know, Microsoft Teams or what used to be Skype. It's all second nature. And we've even figured out 
how to give a plant tour with, uh, you know, FaceTime, you know, and being able to go around the plant and say, hey, look at this line that's set up. And, and um, just uh, three weeks ago, I did a virtual grand opening of a brand new facility in Phoenix. We had the governor and the mayor of Phoenix online, but we did it all virtually. And we had one of the guys in the factory with a camera and he did the tour, but we all spoke a little bit and had the governor participate, but we did it as a virtual grand opening, which was, you know, just a different way to attack uh, a challenge. And, and you know what was funny? So many people, I think, were tired of being on COVID calls that we had amazing attendance. We had 300 people attend. I think if we did it live, we would have had 50. And the fact that it was like, even in Phoenix, it was on the network news, Fox came over because they wanted something that was something that was going on that was exciting and different. And so it's been an interesting time. I mean, I'll, I'll maybe I'll pause there and, and let us kind of move around. But um, communication is so key and staying connected with your employees, staying connected with your staff and just finding multiple ways to communicate, whether it's a video conference or whether it's a text or an email. We just have found for us, you just got to communicate all the time and um, stay close to people because it's easy to get isolated in this crazy time. And you really want to make sure that your teams are productive and being isolated is not a good thing. So I'll pause there and hand it back on Thank you, Jeff. And, you know, besides that, I really heard uh, the undercurrent of the, the importance of being agile and able to adapt. And then, of course, this, I think from all of you, I heard the power of diversification. I think you're all able to handle things a certain way because of that. All right, and now turning to uh, our fourth panelist, uh, David Lowe. And I think David brings also a very interesting perspective to this, and along with this point about diversification, because David is chief executive at a private equity firm with a number of other um, firms underneath. And um, David has an MBA from Stanford University, I believe, and also an undergraduate degree from UC Davis. So thank you very much uh, for being here, David. And uh, going back to the same questions, um, you know, what does it mean to both for you as the private equity firm, but also the firms that you work with uh, in your portfolio? And um, how do you approach leadership during these times, uh, again, at your firm? And what do you see at the firms that you manage? Yeah, well, thank you for that introduction. Um, I remember very fondly my days at UC Davis and uh, the tremendous education I got there and all the fun I had there. Um, so as uh, was said, I run a private equity firm in Walnut Creek. Uh, we focus on investing control positions. So we buy more than 51% of the companies in middle market, in the middle market. So businesses between 10 and $50 million of EBITDA or free cash flow. And we focus on investing in companies that are mostly in, in our view going into the investment recession resistant. Well, that's turned out to be very fortunate because um, the sectors that we've invested in have performed nicely in the recession. And each company, we have six portfolio companies, each company has different challenges and different opportunities. And I think it's pretty interesting to, to look at these companies. Now, I'm just a basic business guy. I you know, am not a, a tech company CEO like the other speakers you've heard of. Um, but uh, the companies we've invested in have similar um, characteristics. Uh, we have three food companies. In particular, they operate in salty snacks. One makes chips, salsa, and queso under the On the Border brand. Um, another one makes 
uh, trail mix and uh, nut uh, mixes um, called Snack Club. And then a third, which I'm currently acting CEO of, uh, is a jerky business called Tillamook Country Smoker in Tillamook, Oregon. Um, it turns out that when um, COVID hit, hit that people of course still need to eat but on top of that they like the comfort food associated with salty snacks and so we've seen businesses in these three food companies that don't have convenience store exposure really thrive so a grocery mass club those uh, classes of trade have done very very well for our um, our snack businesses but at first the convenience store uh, segment all but shut down. And, and the charts we saw at the beginning, we saw that behavior uh, in, in early April. Um, but now what's happening is because people are not terribly interested in traveling by air, they're traveling by car. And so the convenience store seg segment has rebounded enormously, uh, creating great growth in these companies. And uh, the on the border company, for instance, um, is up 60% in 2020. Uh, we're in the process of uh, doing what we do, which is um, buying companies, growing them rapidly, and then selling them. And in this case, we're selling this company. And we will uh, sell this business without a single in-person event. It'll entirely be done with management meetings and Zoom. And to be able to conduct a transaction um, by Zoom uh, prior to COVID was unheard of. But... Uh, the efficiency gained in the process using a non-in-person management meeting structure for the sale process is huge, both for the management team and the investment banking helping us. We also have three companies in marketing services, I'll say broadly. Um, these businesses do very different things. One does online marketing and advertising for insurance companies. It's called Media Alpha. Uh, this business, uh, people can work 100% remotely. In the food companies, the big challenge we had is that people have to come to work to make the food. This has been really tough for us because in food, we've had to become new manufacturing engineers, redesigning how we make everything to keep people six feet from one another, to ensure that they wear masks and take their temperatures and all the things that, that would normally be done. But what we found that the key amongst um, these businesses that need in-person activity is education of our team members for when they're not at work. Because we're only as good as our weakest link. And our weakest link is the behavior of the least careful person when they're not at work. Anyway, back to the marketing services companies. All of these businesses can work remotely and have done so very effectively. Um, as you might expect for insurance marketing, with the lack of live television, uh, live television sports, uh, advertising there is way down. So this business is crushing it. Um, we have another company that makes mobile applications for, uh, for phones. Um, you can imagine that uh, sectors like travel and hospitality are way down, like we've heard other speakers say, but uh, restaurants are way up as people are trying to find, as we heard before, touchless ways of interacting with the restaurant menu and ordering. Our third business is NetRush. This is a crazy good business. Um, they do marketing and fulfillment for consumer packaged goods companies that want to sell their products on Amazon. And that company obviously has a wind at its back with the 
trends in online shopping, which I'm sure you guys all can personally relate to as boxes are coming to your house all the time. Well, this company's really benefited from that trend, obviously, and the health and wellness segment of the business vitamins and those kinds of things are up just hundreds of percent, uh, whereas outdoor recreation um, is flat to down, and that was an area that that company had. But net, it's, it's up. So each company has different threats and opportunities they're facing, and our operating plans focus on risk, the risk and mitigations associated with the threats and pursuing aggressively the plans to capitalize on each opportunity. Because, you know, I think as has been said by lots of smart people starting in World War II, never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank, thank you, David. Me. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, with what all four of you said, I maybe I'm, I'm going to take you into like a lightning round of a follow-up question with maybe a minute to respond uh, <clears throat> quickly so we can move on to the next set of things. And the question I have, you all described sort of a, a sense and respond framework and, you know, what's changed during these three months and how you've, you know, learned what's changing and responded to those things. I just wanted a quick follow-up from you about what do you, what's the prognosis, what's the future, if you're willing to speculate over the next six to 12 months about these changes, where do you see things going? And I'll go in the reverse order this time. I'll start with David and then Jeff and Crystal and Michael. So over to you, David. Uh-oh, yeah. Well, I have a numerically based, very pessimistic outlook on um, what's going on in our country. And you can see it in the numbers and in our leadership. Um, and it makes me sad and it makes me scared. Um, but from a business perspective, I think the most important thing we as leaders do is try and keep people safe and keep employment up by executing effective strategies given this crazy environment we face. And so if we can, you know, I run, uh, help run small businesses, so, or medium-sized businesses compared to the other speakers. So for us, it's super critical to keep the things we do down to what I call the vital few objectives, just really focusing on three to five key initiatives at each business to capitalize on the opportunities. And in every company, uh, employee safety is number one right now. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, I might. I mean, I totally agree. Employee safety has been a top of our list. Again, I guess, you know, Dave and I share that in a company that, you know, that has to maintain operations. And, and, and it really is a challenge as a leader because a lot of employees are like, well, why are we here? Like, our families are home. Shouldn't we be home? And you kind of have to constantly communicate well, why we do for what we do for the military is saving lives and there are critical products that we have to build. And, and um, I don't know exactly where this is going to go. I, I guess I'm, I'm betting on technology. I, uh, I believe we're going to get, we're going to get there with uh, better therapeutics and, and ultimately a vaccine. Um, doesn't mean there, you know, I heard there's a new version of swine flu that we now have to worry about this on the horizon. But I, I think, I think there's a very dynamic environment. I think six months from now, it could look pretty different. We might be at 50%, you know, if it's doubling every 40 days, by the end of the year, we're gonna be at 
we're on, you know, whether we like it or not, we're going to be at 50% infection rate and, and then we'll, you know, can talk about herd immunity or we're going to find ways to treat it and people are going to start, you know, thinking about wearing masks and, and being smart when they're out and about. Um, so I kind of feel like you just got to kind of work through it and, and get to the other side. Um, but I, I do think things, some things will change you know, for forever. And, you know, there'll be a class of our employees that can work remotely that we'll probably never bring back. Um, I've been surprised how much engineering design we've been able to do remote. Um, and, and, and it's a big debate, I think, with other CEOs that I've interacted with, how much, you know, do you just do well when you're sustaining momentum being remote? Or do you, you know, or can you really just live that way, you know, and, and there's virtual companies out there all the time. And when you get into areas of innovation, ideation, or even customer engagement, do you want to meet in an office and have a meet, you know, face-to-face where you can interact and be on the whiteboard, you know, and, and will we do that, but will it change the way that we innovate and the way that we operate? We're, we're still trying to figure that out. I, I don't know, you know, I wish there was a crystal ball and I could see it all, but the only other thing I would say is, we, um, I only joined my company uh, just over a year ago, and I said uh, with my staff, I put together a three-year strategy, and going through this effort, it's easy to get distracted, but I basically, you know, have shared with my staff, like, guys, the strategy is still intact. There are areas we have to adjust for this environment and for the future, but don't lose sight of true north, you know, like, there's disruptions and there's things that distract you and we got to get through the current quarter. But, you know, what we're trying to do to transform the company long-term because fundamentally, you know, we did a lot of work to develop our strategic plan. Um, you know, if, if you, if you do that, if you look out a few years, you know, there's not a reason why that would materially change at least for what we do. Now I can appreciate if you're in another industry, it might be your whole customer base might be blown up. But for us, it was really more about, staying focused on the long-term. It's so easy to be distracted by the urgent that you forget the important and just, you know, the, just finding that balance and being able to do uh, both is, is really uh, super important in my view. Great, thank you. And you know, you, you two, two got two of my favorite quotes out during the last five minutes, never let a crisis go to waste <laughs> and don't let the uh, urgent uh, push away the important. Uh, Crystal, over to you. Yeah, I wish I could predict the future and tell, uh, tell everyone what's going to happen. I think the, the most important thing that's going to come out of this is this is going to be a forcing function that um, is about if you don't have your game face on and you're not ready to move and, and, and to move in a way that's going to, quite frankly, not only protect your employees, but um, come out stronger on the other side. That's the that's the option. You stand still, or you come out stronger on the other side. And I do believe that with adversity comes opportunity. And so I think some while there are a lot of tough things that people um, are are facing, I think some amazing things will come out of this. And I think, you know, I believe very much in kind of innovators' dilemma. These are forcing functions that bring out the best and worst in everyone, and then everything. And um, I happen to say, okay, be a realist, acknowledge the stuff that's going to be the tough stuff, but also be the mindset that says, well, I'm going to take full advantage of making sure we come out stronger than we went in. And so, um, you know, the, the biggest, I think, outlier right now that, that people, I think there's a misnomer that there's a high degree of productivity working from home. 
and I'm not like Michael, we can work from any location. The problem with it is that people are applying that to unrealistic circumstances. These are not normal circumstances. People are going to, they have nothing else to do. They're literally working 24 seven because there's nowhere to go. So to say that there's, I believe there are massive productivity gains, by the way, but not to the degree that people believe that, that they can be sustainable for the health and well-being of our individuals, as well as for the company. So I plan on not looking at a single part of this and saying, how do I go back to norm? I plan on looking at how do I take and make it better and use this as an opportunity to challenge the norm. And so that's kind of our perspectives and how we're leading through it. Yeah, that's very true, Krista. That, that hits home totally because I think we work because we're bored. And so you're seeing a lot of that happening. <laughs> um, okay, finally, uh, let's have you close this out, Michael, and then I'll move on to the, our next thing, which is about skills. Yeah, um, just uh, Crystal talked about it. And, and uh, you know, I know Jeff is in the middle of this, which is operating a, a, a global company. And one observation I'd offer that's a little bit off of what you asked him on is that uh, Dave, Dave touched on it in his remarks. The United States has handled this crisis the worst uh, out of any, any governing organization. I've got operations in China. I've got operations in Taiwan, Korea, Europe, uh, India. And no country has handled this as poorly as the United States. And I think it's been, you know, government, businesses, it's, it's hard to point a finger exactly at what's to blame. You know, uh, I'm sure Jeff has this experience. Operations in China came back without all this angst. We, we suddenly, without a great deal of fanfare, my teams in China were back operating. Korea, you know, operating seamlessly without all this back and forth. So we've really struggled with the problem in the U.S. I think we don't have the situation that China does relative to a strong authoritarian central government that can impose rules. And, and that's, you know, that's a unique situation for them. Um, but it's, it's a big problem here in the U.S. And we need to collectively figure out you know, how we're going to move together as a society, as a country. And I think until that happens, this is going to be just an ongoing cycle, uh, as, as, as several of the previous people have talked about. So, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm very concerned long-term for the U.S. I think it's, it's a situation where we could, conceal, could fall further behind as a country, and uh, we need to figure things out pretty quickly. All right. So uh, for the next 10 minutes, um, I'd um, love to have you talk maybe particularly with an eye on the student attendees. In this change environment and with many of the things that you talked about, the balancing the business and the people, keeping employees safe, changing the organizational you know, work environment, importance of bringing things back, what are the skills among graduates and students that they should most try to earn for themselves. Uh, and that includes knowledge, you know, what experiences, maybe certifications, characteristics, and personalities that you find important. And, you know, we'll go with uh, Crystal first and then over to Michael, David, and Jeff. Look, I, you know, I think there's probably a number of different areas. Jeff said it. I, I think everything pretty much in life comes down to communication 
and your ability to um, understand your circumstances and your surroundings, no matter what they are, and be extremely intentional. The ability to have an EQ and an IQ that um, can read situations and can um, have, have a level of um, understanding about what people may be going through, reading people. So these are, I know, a little bit maybe of, um, they're, they're definitely skills you can study, but they're less about a certification per se. But look, I've worked my, almost my entire career uh, from home. I've sat in almost every role that you could think of at Concur and then at SAP Concur, ultimately as the CRO of Concur. And I, you know, I don't, it could be in a plane, I could be in a phone booth, it didn't matter. I mean, the reality is our world is just, um, is not what it used to be. And so communication, I think it's a lost art of the stopping and talking and having a conversation. And that has to be practiced intentionally across Zoom um, and, and far not often enough in person. And it's probably going to get harder given that people don't want to be close to one another. <laughs> and that's unfortunate. Um, so I think it is about human understanding how to interact with humans. Uh, we cannot lose that. It doesn't matter what kind of technology you have. We have to continue to um, work together and figure out how to form teams in a virtual setting. That type of um, study, I think, is very important for the future. All right, so teamwork, communication, and the ability to sense, I think is what I would put it as. Uh, Michael? Yeah, I mean, uh, Crystal and Jeff talked to it. Communication is, is key. I think we've all, as leaders, had to communicate a lot more than in a normal situation. So communication has been very important. I, I, to offer sort of a, a, a new perspective, I would say quick decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that you can get lots of data. The data is changing all the time. But I think as leaders, we've all had to react and, and react quickly. And sometimes that reaction is wrong. You can't be afraid to course correct when you, when you make a decision. But not making a decision is worse, I think, than, than the wrong decision. So that quick decision making, this whole, uh, this whole set of situations, whether it's been the social unrest or, or been the, the pandemic, I think has required quick and decisive action. And, you know, that as a, as a leader, as, as the students are going through their coursework, always keeping that in mind, I think is key. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you, um, I, because I think in many of these situations, having a decision that everyone can then, you know, coalesce around and know what they need to do. So the timing is really critical and being able to decide early with imperfect information. Um, let's go to, uh, what's that, uh, David and Jeff? Sure, I think Crystal said something that really resonates with me, which is, um, the older and more experienced I get, the more important EQ or emotional intelligence is versus IQ. And for me, so much of business dwells in content, who, what, where, and how, you know, the basic content of running a business. But the effectiveness of leadership is much more than dealing with the content. It's dealing with the context, meaning how are we being with the content? How are we being? Are we focused on being right or are we curious? Are we focused on blaming people 
Are we looking for the learnings from our mistakes? Are we focused on suppressing our emotions? Are we, or, or are we really open to understanding that at a time like this, people feel fear and acknowledging that hey, we're in a pandemic, people are gonna be afraid. Let's acknowledge that. And so emotional intelligence, I think right now, is more important than content management. Great, David, thanks. And that resonates with what I've been hearing about, you know, that the 21st century will require a lot more generalist and fundamental skills rather than specific domain uh, knowledge. Um, yes. All right, Jeff? Well, I, it's funny. I um, have a daughter that just graduated in May from a four-year uh, liberal arts institution, and she's, uh, she's been on the job hunt, and she, she actually, believe it or not, got a job in New York City. So wow. there's hope. Congratulations. For those of you. Yeah, Yay. there's hope for those of you that, yeah, for her. that you know, when you, when you graduate, you're, you know, maybe you're going to shift to a new role or, or a new job, but um, I, I would just say a couple of things, and I think the feedback was awesome from, from my uh, fellow panelists here. Um, I think in this environment, being able to work independently, you know, I mean, being able to, you may not get the same kind of onboarding uh, that others have had and being able to be, you know, self-motivated and be, don't be afraid to ask questions if you need direction, but being able to go independently is, I think, super important because you may not be co-located with a team like you would have been even in prior, um, in prior times. Um, also, I think you got a natural advantage, you know, just the use of technology. I, I, you know, if my, if my mother, my 83 year old mother could figure out Zoom, I mean, think of the advantage that all of you have that, you know, that may be younger than some of us uh, on the call and that, you know, kind of grew up with being online, social media and so many different ways to communicate. And, and we see a lot of it being used for bad and, and horrible things happening, but there really is a lot of mechanisms now to connect and to leverage those in a work environment, whether it's, you know, LinkedIn and networking and finding jobs through that or all the online portals for that. And um, just your, your comfort level of technology, I think is a huge advantage to you. And, um, and just being tenacious, you know, and, and when you're looking for the next uh, opportunity, just, you know, understand exactly what you want and you're going to get a lot of no's probably before you get a yes. But, um, I, you know, I, th I think that uh, UC Davis is going to prepare you well to, um, to take on the next challenge and, and you just want to, you know, leverage that. But um, there's at least a couple thoughts I think might be relevant. Excellent. So before I go over to student uh, contributed questions, my final question to you all, um, if you're willing to share or recommend to all of us, what are you reading or watching maybe that is influencing your actions as a leader during these times? And I'll take it in any order, anyone who wants to volunteer, move forward. Well, I mentioned Innovator Suwana, right. I, I love it. But there's an interesting book I've just started to read and it's called The Year Without Pants. Um, and it's um, a look at a firm um, behind WordPress that worked remote and um, it was a different set of circumstances, but it was just a phenomenon that they were experiencing. And so, look, I haven't made it all the way through, but I'll just tell you started. I thought it was interesting. Um, those are a couple of things that I, I have on my desk. Thank you, Crystal. 
Well, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I, you know, I don't read. I, I read enough email and, and reports <laughs> and things like that. Crystal is far better than me. At least she's got, you know, something outside of work. I, I have to admit that I don't. So uh, this is not a good question for me, for sure. Don't do what Michael's doing. That is a, <laughs> that's, a, that's the X part right here. All right, there you go. You've got to have something outside. That's, that she's got it right. I think before we started, Crystal made a comment to, you know, there's, there's, there's memes out there about there's so much misinformation. So I know for myself, I, I care a lot about, you know, fellow CEO roundtables and what are, what are they hearing and what can you believe or not believe? Like, even when it comes to, you know, my, my home base is in Arizona and I can't tell you what the COVID cases are because I look at the Institute of Health and I, you know, it's like, I don't know what to believe. I look at the, I, I do look sometimes at the tracker that uh, Johns Hopkins does, and it seems pretty good, but there's so many inconsistencies. It's really a challenge. So while it's good to stay connected, and I support you on that, Crystal, there's a time you got to turn it off. Like sometimes on weekends, you know, I got to shut it down a bit because it's just too much, uh, too much information. You know what you need, Jeff? TikTok is what you need. <laughs> I am, oh, no. And do not go on TikTok because it's addictive. I, have, okay. I am here to tell you. I'm okay. sorry. Go ahead. The, the only thing I was going to add is that I am actually, I am trying to read a book. I'm, I'm somewhere between the two of these guys because I, I also read a lot of my own work email. But I, I took it on myself to re read this book called Two Nations, uh, Black and White, Separate, Hostile, Unequal. And it's really about sort of racial injustice and mm -hmm. with all the Black Lives Matter, you know, movement that's happening and wanting to be informed to sort of, because it is also something we're dealing with on top of all the COVID um, craziness. Um, just trying to just, it is a book that was written several years ago. It actually had a rewrite like 10 years ago, but I still think it's pretty relevant about just some of the, the divide in, uh, in, in our, you know, in our world today. And if I may add on that topic, actually the work of Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's been doing this thing on the 1619 project, is very, I think, uh, vivid and clear uh, on these issues. Could so, you say her name again? It, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Okay, thank you. An important business book that, that we use to train our executive teams is called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. I don't know if the other panelists have uh, been exposed to it, but I, I think it's a super important book that talks about, uh, you know, how we behave at work. Fifteen right. commitments of conscious leadership. Dave, right. what's hey. the, what's the main what's the main premise of the book? It's really basic. Uh, it, it's a it's a model that even I can understand. A simple <laughs> black line, and you're either above the line as a leader, focused on curiosity, or below the line, focused on being right above the line, you know, uh, looking for your learnings from failures and below the line looking for blame. It's more like elaborate that. than that, but it's a very, very important book in my Interesting. Opinion. Interesting. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for a great discussion. And uh, Jackie, I'm going to move on to the questions from students. So we have several coming in. I think this is a very exciting discussion. So the first one I'm going to start with is from Matt Harris, uh, who's in our Sacramento program. Um, and his question is, what quarantine change added a cultural or process asset? Okay. 
uh, that you expect as long run value. So I think he's talking about what kind of change due to the quarantine uh, causes some kind of process or cultural change that would create long-term value. And what risks do you expect to be around for many years to come? Yeah, I mean, uh, let me maybe open. I, I think, you know, again, and you can see some of this in, in uh, some of my remarks about how the U.S. Has, has handled this. You know, my worry, it's a significant one, isn't necessarily related to the coronavirus, but it's a second order effect. And that's sort of an isolating behavior that the United States has, has adopted. We've spent a lot of years sort of developing this global economy um, all, all three of the leaders, I think, take benefit in, in a global economy. And the worry I have is that this coronavirus has exacerbated sort of an isolationist policy in the United States. And I don't know that that's going to be recoverable in the near term. And so how we think about business now certainly here in our industry is is becoming increasingly based on a u.s first model and um you know in the long term is that right or wrong i, I think it's going to end up being being a big big negative but this polarization that's occurred uh, and that has been exacerbated by coronavirus i think is going to um you know, cause us problems again, again as a country and as, as technology industry leaders uh, for quite some time. And we're gonna all have to figure out how to adapt to that. So I share your concern. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I share his concern. I, I'm, I'm very concerned about this. I mean, of course I've got a facility in China and you know, who knows what the future holds. Uh, with regards to manufacturing in China, certainly it's falling out of vogue. Um, who would have thought having such a big footprint in the U.S. for manufacturing would be would be uh, an advantage? Right now, it, for my company, it turns out to be one. But uh, but I'm I'm concerned. I mean, I do. I'm somewhere like I recognize that China is now a superpower, and we need a better trade balance and better trade, um, you know, agreement with them that's more balanced from when they weren't, maybe when it was established when they were a third world country and now they're not. But on the other hand, I, you know, I, I, I definitely, what uh, Michael said resonates with me that it's concerning to me that we seem to be turning more inward and even, even vaccine development, they're like, well, if we have vaccine first and we'll give it to all of our U.S., you know, all of the U.S., uh, you know, obviously people and, and then we'll keep it from other countries. And if China gets it, then maybe we won't get it. And we won't solve this thing if we don't solve this thing globally. And so, you know, that's, it's a big concern, I think right now. Um, I'd like to believe that we're gonna swing, that it's somewhat driven by the political environment and, and that will swing over time to a more rational balance, but um, I'm concerned as well. So one of the insights I'm getting from this also is, you know, the earlier point about diversification, but also the sense that you also need to diversify in the methods or processes that, you know, maybe instead of having a completely just-in-time system that is enabled by high-quality data and analytics, you've got to have more room for buffers and risk management and so forth. And I think that's a lesson that, like you said, because you had U.S. manufacturing facilities, you were able to take advantage of those. So having diversity in those uh, you know, methods of production, distribution, et cetera, seems to make a lot of sense. 
The, the next question I want to put out is from Samantha Contreras, which is a very interesting question, which I think a lot of students must be facing. Should we consider applying to companies outside the US? Who wants to take that? Is Samantha, where's Samantha at? Do you see Samantha? Is the nature, I want to just clarify the nature of the question. Maybe a little bit more background on Context, it. Is yeah. it, yeah. Sure, I believe it must be from students who are thinking about graduating, but yes, if Samantha is sure. still here. Is could it you out please? of fear or opportunity? I guess I'm trying to understand the, the context. Like, is it, which, which direction? <laughs> Do we know if Samantha is here? Hmm. Okay, great, yes. I was trying to unmute, I, yes. I was <laughs> unmuted. Um, yeah, so um, I think I was just curious because, you know, I, I always saw myself, you know, trying to apply for, you know, um, you know, uh, either a company in California or in the United States. And so now it seems like, um, you know, opening up my uh, myself to applying to companies outside of the U.S. might also be, a, you know, something that I should start to consider. Um, and, you know, I've never actually kind of thought about that. So I don't even know what are kind of the best avenues. Um, to 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 do that right um if i sh should be looking at companies like in canada or in mexico or somewhere um that still fit you know what i've been learning and what i'm interested in which is um you know entrepreneurship marketing and leadership um here at the gsm um i feel like my experience is, is pretty diverse so i i can kind of open myself up to um, to different companies, and so I, I I just never considered you know a company outside of the U.S. So that that was my question, the context of my question. It's a great question, and I'll just say since we're a French domicile company, you are a hundred percent. You should go work for a French company named Talon. Um, so we are we are open to um, um, all inquiries. I'll just say this. I think there's two perspectives. One, I think any uh, global experience you can get, take COVID aside, I 100% believe anything you can do to diverse your, diversify yourself in experience in understanding localization in regions, um, I think it teaches you so much um, and, it, and it just broadens your perspective and understanding and exposes you. The more things you can get exposed to that are different, the better off you will be, in my opinion. And I think challenging yourself to do that and working outside of the U.S., I, I personally, this is my own opinion, um, highly value that. And I, and I think it's um, amazing. I will tell you that I think there are some challenges, kind of some of the points of, you know, getting visas if you're outside of the U.S. and trying to come into the U.S. Obviously, right now, that's a challenge. And I don't know if we'll put ourselves in circumstances where, you know, Boris won't let us go work in the UK because, you know, we're so difficult to deal with and we're, you know, causing so much consternation. So outside of the visa issue and health and safety, I think it's an amazing opportunity and I would highly recommend it. So, um, but once again, that, that is regardless of whether talent's domiciled in, in France or not, but that happens to be true. So Samantha, you got, you've got my okay. info. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would just follow up. I, I absolutely agree with what Crystal said. In general, international experience is invaluable. Uh, I, I like people that have had exposure to different markets and different places. 
but right now I think it's going to be an extreme challenge. I just advised a business student who was in Germany and trying to get a job in the United States. And we started going through it. And just like Crystal said, uh, it would be impossible, almost impossible for her to get a visa to, to even work here. And conversely, at least in the short term, us now traveling to Europe or other markets is going to be a big challenge. But if you can get it at any point in your career, I think it's invaluable. All right, I'm going to move on to the next one. And then this is something that many of you touched upon, which is the, you know, going more digital, doing things differently. And the question was that, look, if all companies are going to do this to transform, to go into technology, how do the technology companies in particular differentiate themselves? And, you know, I would annotate this question because this sort of a thing occurs a lot with technology. And, you know, there was a very famous controversial article about 20 years ago by Nicholas Carr, which said IT does not matter because everyone can adopt IT and become equal. And then it's a competition and arms race. And the, the counterpoint to that is that not everyone can go digital or innovate in me being more digital in the same way. So I think keeping that in mind, uh, I'd love to hear what the panelists have to say about this point that how do these technology companies continue to differentiate themselves? I mean, maybe I'll start. I, I think, you know, the world is just moving faster in general because of technology. And, and I think that no matter what business you're in, understanding your competition, understanding what your customer needs are, um, you know, kind of gu should guide your strategy. And I, I always sort of start with, you know, the customer and what value am I bringing? And is that differentiated from the competitors in the space or people that might be looking at that. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't think you, I mean, you're right that, geez, are you really different? Cause anyone can do it. But I also kind of look at like not, not getting so hung up on, um, you know, that technology is catching up, but just really focusing more on understanding, you know, what you bring and is it differentiated? And if it's not, how do you pivot to make sure that it is differentiated? And, and I don't, think those, you know, some companies, some tech companies will say, well, we differentiate through technology, but it's usually more than that. You know, usually it's more, you're solving a customer need, you've identified a market space, maybe it's a small mid-cap company that, you know, does something unique that no one else is interesting, interested in. I ran a company that did a very boring piece of storage networking, but we had 75% gross margin because there were only two competitors because no one cared about it but it was a $500 million company. So there's a lot of ways to be successful in business that, you know, that give you um, a sustainable differentiated advantage. And, and, you know, I guess I, from running a couple different tech product companies in my background, I, I never, you know, I worried more about competition and customers than I did about, Oh, the technology is gonna, you know, is going to pass this up. Now, that being said, you had to have a roadmap where you were relevant and you weren't like on three generational technology, but um, it just became part of our integrated processes as we thought about strategy. That's at least how, how I think about it. Okay, thank you. Um, next question, again, touches something on something that many of you have talked about, which is about decision-making and this sense that I think Michael said quick, uh, decision-making, 
um, versus you know this intentional meaningful decision making. So the question I have here from uh, Kate Kipurso is how do you balance quick and decisive decision making with intentional and meaningful decision making? So. Yeah, I mean maybe I'll I'll take it first. Um because I made those those remarks, but you know, going back to um, something that 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 we said, you know, I, I like to get information. It's not like these these decisions are made quickly in a vacuum. Certainly, Jeff and Crystal both talked to it. Right now, there's a, a tremendous sense of teamwork. Probably more a, a better sense of teamwork than. Uh, we've ever had. I mean, I, you can see it in, in communities, there's a tremendous amount of teamwork, but in companies, there's a tremendous amount of teamwork. And as a management team, I think there's a lot of healthy debate, a lot of healthy uh, conflict. There's ideas that get put forth by a number of different people. And then in the position of a CEO is sort of the ultimate decider, you have to c distill all of that down. But Jeff said, you never perfect information, ever, ever. There's never, ever going to be perfect information. And so you're making a decision based on a set of inputs, based on a set of assumptions. And I, but I think doing that quickly, gathering all the necessary inputs, gathering all the necessary information, making the decision at that point in time is, is particularly important in a time of crisis and a time of massive turbulence. And that's what we're in right now. I think one thing that might help, I can give a specific example that we applied to COVID. I think the ability to make fast decisions comes from a, um, a foundational core philosophies or principles by which you make them against. You have to have a baseline by which you say, this is what I believe. This is how we operate. This is, this is the way we move, you know, just core to your business and who you are. When COVID hit, we developed that for COVID because I knew there were going to be a ton of un, you know, unprecedented um, situations. And if we had to go think through or get direction from someone, there was no one to get direction from. So I basically built a set of uh, basic principles that said, this is the way I'm going to order my, my thinking because I need to be able to react quickly. There's going to be three things. One, health of my um, customers, employees, all my people. I will not compromise it. That's physical health. The second thing is going to be mental health. And the third is going to be financial, balancing lives with livelihood. I cannot let this business fall because I don't want one of the individuals within my company to be impacted because they're supporting multiple families in some cases, in Italy, for example, and my customers need me. So I have to look across those three sets of criteria and I form that quickly and I said, what, am I, what do I believe in? What am I gonna base my decisions on? Those three things. And then when the decisions came, I said, what is it compromise? Am I risking one of these categories too much? If I looked across these three, that's what I believe in, go. And so I believe, you know, whether COVID or not, you have to be in a position to have the confidence. You're not always going to make the right decision, by the way, but it's got to be based on something. What, how are we making decisions? And you should just have a core set of philosophy that says, in a normal working order, this is what it is. When the conditions change, how am I going to bounce those, those conditions off of that? And so for me, I believe you have to have that. It's core and it's critical to being able to make fast decisions. Yeah, that is very insightful, Crystal, because I'm thinking of it as, you know, for these rapid decisions, you're really setting it up as a muscle memory. 
Right. And, you know, think of the pilot of a Boeing 747 who's landing in crosswinds and then decides mm -hmm. to take off the moment they hit the runway. That's mm -hmm. rapid decision making. You don't have time to consider all the factors, get all the data, but mm -hmm. there's a cost of waiting, which has to be factored into that decision. So I think going back to... Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. The one thing I was going to say that Michael made me, I don't know if you just said it or Michael made me think of it, that might be helpful to, to someone on this call. Frequent checkpoints. One of the things we inserted is like a COVID SWAT calls every other day. We're looking at a new set of information. We're sitting down as an executive team and we're having check-ins to say, and what I'm seeing is what you're seeing is what you're seeing. Let's calibrate. The recalibration on a frequent basis, the huddle, that would be the only other thing. And I apologize for interrupting you. That would no, be the only other thing I would say. This right. and, and, and all I was going to say to Kate, actually, who asked this question on balancing these two types of decisions is that really you have to look at the cost of waiting and not deciding. And if that cost is very high, then you have to make those rapid decisions. And if you train your brain, muscle memory, you know, the fundamentals that we talked about, then you can actually make them pretty sensibly at the same time, right? All right, so move to the next. Yes, we have somebody else. Yeah. I, I was just gonna weigh in on this one because I think Michael said something that resonated with me. You know, not making a decision is a decision too. I love that statement right. because, you know, in the COVID timeframe, there's crisis and you've got to deal with it. But I tell you, I've been through cyber events. I've been through turnarounds and maybe I've changed jobs too much. But any new job I went into, really what I've typically found when there's been challenges is decisions weren't being made. And so I think it's super, it's almost independent of COVID. It's like super important to assess your situation and um, you're going to gather as much data as you want. I mean, I'm an engineer by degree, so I want, I'm a data hound. I love data, but then you got the gut feel and you just have to, you know, have the strength of your conviction and move in that direction. What, what also is interesting to Crystal touch on is that checkpoints. What I've found, like when I go into an organization that I'm leading, whether you're leading a project, a team, it doesn't have to be a CEO. What, what I've found is if you make a call and you pick a direction, then you'll really find out what all the other issues are with it. It's, it's when you move along and, and, you're, and you're on the fence that you really won't find out. So there's been times I've made the call, it was wrong. And within a week, I could tell that clearly all these other things came out that weren't on the table. And now that people took positions and then I could reverse it. I mean, I, I was learning and I was saying, look, we made a mistake. We're going to reverse it. And just having the flexibility to do that and not having an ego that, you can't make a mistake, I think is, is super important and um, doing that checkpoint all, along the way. We made some COVID decisions with our teams and I was like, I know as a senior leadership team, we feel it's the right thing. Let's do a survey, let's do a pulse survey of our team and see if they believe that we're protecting them and doing the right PPE and taking care of them with masks and cleaning aids and all that. Well, you did a little survey and said, you know what, we need to course correct in this area everything else we're doing is great. And, you know, that's one of those sort of checkpoints to verify that, you know, decisions you're making are resonating and, and, you know, having someone down in the organization be able to look up to you and say, look, reverse mentoring, this, this isn't working the way you intended, you know, when you made that call. So thank you for adding that very important point, uh, Jeff, about, you know, identifying a mistake and course correcting if needed. Um, yeah, and I'll just, yes, David. let me just chime in for one second here. It, what, what, what we found is that suboptimal decision-making 
hurts far less than a lack of alignment and intense focus on executing the decisions that were made, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So you can make suboptimal decisions and execute brilliantly against those and be better off as a business than if you made the perfect decision and kind of floundered around with execution. So Dave, yeah, that's a lot of that's wonderful that's one-liners from here, you know. Sorry. Dave, that's almost like saying there that's almost like saying there is no bad decision if you if you if you execute it with in with you know focus and and intensity, right? Kind of like no, I don't mean that. I just meant suboptimal. So if you have a choice of three good things to do and you pick one that turns out not to be the best thing you could have picked, but execute against it very well, that's great. If you pick the wrong thing altogether, of course, that's that's okay. pointless and you're just going to end up executing a very bad decision. <laughs> yeah, and you know, very often, and this is something I study a lot, we find ourselves in situations where the decision choices, the outcomes are sort of on a plateau. So right. if you pick one or the other, it's not that different. But if you decide very late or if you fail to execute well, then there's a huge difference in outcome. So I think that's a very important point, David. Thank you. I think I'll go to one more question and see if we can do this rapidly, uh, which is, do you think there has been a shift in consumer behavior during this COVID-19 times that will stick around for the long term? And based on that, you see something that will cause you to take your companies forward in a very different direction. Yeah, I mean, in consumer packaged goods, for sure, online shopping is going to be a recurring trend. And, uh, you know, driving up to Walmart or Safeway and having somebody put their groceries, your groceries in the back of your car, that's going to be with us forever. Uh, it's better, <laughs> at least in my experience, it's just better. <laughs> so, um you know, I think those trends are, are going to be with us. I think uh, Zoom remote marketing, you know, remote management is going to be with us. And I think the, the curious, uh, I'm curious about whether or not if in executive leadership roles, people can work elsewhere um, more readily, if that will increase executives move to trophy locations like Jackson Hole or stuff like that, or for my tax sensitive colleagues, their desire to live in Nevada, you know, so I, I'm just curious if, if, if Zoom and, you know, for, for non mechanical engineering or, or electrical engineering jobs where, you know, you can lead remotely, if that will change, if, you know, where people ultimately live. I think the, I think 100% think it will. I, I believe in the philosophy when someone asks me, where do you want someone to, to be located? I don't care what the role is. I just say, find me the best person and I'll deal with the location. I always want the best people. I, I will always work out the location. So I believe we've now demonstrated for our customers in terms of how we deliver, um, you know, our services and how we onboard people and time to value. We've just demonstrated out of necessity that it's possible to do it remotely. And so now what I think is going to happen is I've just gained a ton of efficiencies in my business. My, my ability, my, my cost of acquisition, my, my cost of service delivery. I don't have people on a plane for two of the, the three days or have them out. Now, is that going to be, there was another question there. Is it always going to be that way? Are people going to go back to expecting it? I think there's some cultures where people say, I need you on site and there might be some ebb and flow of it. But I would say this is a great opportunity for companies to run more efficiently. 
and to still be customer focused and to say, I'd rather give you the service that I think is gonna be the most value. It's not that I don't want the FaceTime, but let's do some of this in a way that creates efficiencies for you and for me, because that's good for both of us and let's make sure we, we spend our time in the right places. I think that there, this because of the, it never would have happened had the whole world not shut down. If one company just would have said, we're just gonna do this and we're gonna prove that it works and some have tried, but now we've done it, and now I think the outcome is it's hard to reverse what's in your head, what you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that Crystal absolutely represents the, the, the modern CEO. I'm old school for sure. And, uh, but I, even, even in that regard, I have to agree with a lot of what, what she said. I've been surprised at how well customer calls happen on Zoom, how well meetings happen on Zoom. We, we talked about earlier today, I had an analyst day via Zoom. Uh, we've all done these banking conferences to pre present our companies by Zoom. You know, frankly, I, I know probably for the, for the other three panelists and likely myself, this meeting would not have happened had it not been on Zoom, right? It's just a much more convenient experience to get people to, to do things if you don't have to travel to Davis or travel here or travel there. Um, and and there, thus, as Crystal pointed out, efficiency goes up, but I don't think a lot was lost in, in the personal touch. And, and you know, I think that is gonna be the quote unquote new normal. All right, um, anybody want to add to that? Okay. So we are coming to the end of our appointed time, and I do not want to let it go by without expressing my gratitude to all of you for uh, speakers for joining us and sharing these extremely insightful and engaging ideas. And I said, as I said earlier, we got a whole set of these wonderful one-liners that I hope somebody's going to take out and you know create a, a trailer or a teaser out of this. Um, final thoughts: thirty seconds, everyone. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's an exciting time to be a student. Um, you know, honestly, uh, Crystal touched on it. When when there's this much turbulence, it creates opportunity. And and I think whether you're entering a traditional company, starting a company, uh, working abroad, as, as somebody mentioned, no matter what, I think that it's an unbelievably great time to be entering the workforce because there is a lot of change and, and having the skill set and the foundation that you've, you've gotten from a business program, I think will serve you unbelievably well. It's, it, it's, it really is, in many respects, uh, it's, it's a tough time, but I think that that really creates opportunity and, and it's, it's a great time to be entering the workforce. All right, thank you, Michael. Crystal, 30 seconds. Look, I think with anything in life, you can look at and find all the reasons why something's going to be hard or not going to happen. Or you can look at it and go, okay, well, I'm going to figure out all the ways that we're going to go stand out, or I'm going to go make something happen, or I'm going to take it as an opportunity, very much to the, what Michael said. That's just a fundamental mindset. And I think it's tough looking at, looking at where you're at and seeing the job market. Do not let that for one second. You find your unique thing and you position yourself, I don't care if it's in this country or somewhere else, and you stand out. And that's my best advice to you. Thank you. David. Yeah, I think Jeff said this earlier and, and Crystal as well. But, you know, the job market is challenging now. You have to go for it. 
and not be afraid to get no's because if you shoot your gun enough times, you will get a yes. And then when you do get that yes, don't be shy about communicating because many companies will find the remote nature of work to be challenging for onboarding young people. And so you got to take it on yourself to onboard yourself, to ask the questions you don't know the answers to, to make sure you can get the training you need to be successful in your first role out of business school. All right. And Jeff? I mean, I, I'm going to go back a little to agreeing to Michael that this, this could be a really unique time. And, and um, you know, I, I do think in many ways this is going to level the playing field. And so, you know, where you may think you're disadvantaged because you may not have as much experience or you've been at school and, you know, you haven't been in the job market. I, I do think that this disruption, you know, there's always opportunities that are created out of that. And we're all talking about the opportunities for our companies and there's opportunities for new roles and new jobs to emerge. I also just maybe end with, look, everyone on this call, you know, the, the, the four execs that are on the panel, right? We're, we, you could tell we're all optimistic and, you know, nobody, just think about the fact, who would want to work for a pessimist, right? I mean, no, no one wants to work for a CEO that's a pessimist, like, oh, it's horrible. We're never, we're going to, it's never going to be good again. And so, you know, you got to be optimistic and keep a positive attitude because attitude is everything. And, you know, there was some time ago, someone said, wow, you're so lucky. And, and it was like, you know, some of that luck is really like you make your own luck. Right. And if you're optimistic and and uh, have a positive attitude about the future, um, luck will come to you, you know, and when you see it, you got to, you know, latch on, which David said, you know, you, you get that opportunity, you got to be tenacious. But um, I think trying to stay optimistic in this and if you, it's OK to have a down moment, we, we, we deal with it every day. Um, but you really you got to be buoyant, you know, you got to bounce back and go look, I'm optimistic, I'm going to find something, it'll come through in an interview. If you're pessimistic and, you know, Debbie Downer, you know, it's like, it's just going to come off like so, so challenging versus saying, you know, just having the energy and, and being positive. Thank you so much, all of you. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Dean Onaba for final uh, comments and thanks. But I'm really thankful to all of you for a wonderful discussion. Thanks. Thank you again for the panelists today, uh, Crystal, Dave, uh, uh, Jeff, and Michael. It was uh, fantastic. I was looking at the comments that I was getting from all the students and others who have attended saying this was just a fantastic session. And I think uh, there's, there's a difference between a, a functional executive coming in and talking about something versus what you folks have done today because there was there was a lot more wisdom coming from uh, each one of you looking at uh, the picture more, in a more gestalt way and, and talking about the kinds of things one should be paying attention to as a leader in an organization. So we truly um, uh, are, are uh, indebted to you for taking the time today. Michael, as you said, if uh, Zoom was not the medium, probably we would not have had all of you here today at the same time, same place. But uh, that was a great opportunity for all of us. Uh, we will uh, continue to work with our students on some of the skills specifically that you talked about. Uh, the EQ, the understanding, uh, quick decision making, um, all these skills uh, are things that we would spend time talking to our students about and working with them. Um, it, the, it's just, you represent so many different areas, but it was also uh, wonderful to see 
the commonalities between what you are seeing um, and how they they relate to being a good business person in the future and being a good person actually that that's where mm. it was all converging so truly appreciate your insights today and uh, look forward to at some point uh, meeting you all in person as uh, things unfold so uh, Hemant uh, thank you for being a wonderful moderator uh, of the panel today and uh, to all the students who are here today and our staff and and of course uh, the the three people uh, Jackie Stephanie and Aisha who make this all happen uh, so so well so appreciate that very much good night all of you thank you all thank you thank you you've been listening to a podcast by university of california television for more information about this program or uctv visit us online at uctv.tv